Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Dr. David Asher of the Hudson Institute on tightening sanctions on Russia and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for his look at the week ahead. But first, our friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. Uh, He is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's one of the nation's leading experts on Russia, Russia's military, as well as unmanned systems worldwide. Sam, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Great to be back, Vargo. But before we get started, our program today is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner, supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, uh, thanks very much again for uh, joining us. Last week, uh, you gave us a little bit of a preview on what to expect from Vladimir Putin's uh, meeting with Xi Jinping in Moscow, obviously the Russian leader uh, uh, hosting the China Chinese leader in the Russian capital. Uh, they had a three-day meeting, they banqueted, they pledged endless uh, friendship. But what were the tangible results from your keen eyes perspective? I think the two most tangible results are an increase in economic cooperation. Both countries pledged to uh, re-up their uh, bilateral trade and uh, trade and economic initiatives. Uh, these have grown um, in, um, in number and in volume since about a decade ago. And another important element is the uh, high-tech cooperation. Both countries are pledging to cooperate on numerous initiatives in um, their high-tech industries, including some of the more, including in um, some of the more advanced ones like artificial intelligence. And, and a lot of that messaging uh, has been uh, pretty consistent about how the Chinese are trying to straddle that line, right? Help Russia as much as possible without alienating uh, the West, uh, given that they're in economic straits and want to make sure that Europe and the United States at least continue to do as much trade with them as possible. And we're going to hear a lot more about the economic dimension uh, in a little bit with David Asher, uh, who's going to join us to talk about sanctions, their impact, and and obviously this other drive uh, between the two to have the yuan replace the dollar as a world reserve currency. I mean, obviously, that's a big challenge, but we'll hear from uh, David in a minute. R- Russia's offensive has stalled, and each time that happens, Moscow's answer is indiscriminate shelling, uh, whether they're killing a doctor in Kiev or bombing uh, an apartment complex in Kherson or in uh, Kharkiv. Um And each time new weapons are sent to Ukraine by NATO nations, as we saw with fighter aircraft from Poland, uh, Slovenia, as well as North Macedonia, um, Putin has a tendency of amping up the nuclear rhetoric. And now he's saying that he's going to, Russia is going to base tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. Walk us through what all of this means and where we stand right now. Well, obviously, the announcement about placing tactical nukes uh, was a very important one. Uh, There's a lot to discuss here and kind of a lot to discern In the general sense, Russia is placing these uh, weapons as a deterrent to any NATO activity. Russia is concerned that NATO may get involved in the war, possibly via Poland. Uh, This places Russian uh, weapons and systems uh, inside Belarus proper. There is training conducted for Belarusian aircraft crews um, for the aircraft that can be um, refitted to carry these nuclear weapons. Russia is sending an Iskander missile system there as well. They're going to uh, finish building storage facilities for tactical nukes by July 1st. 
what this probably does, according to many Russian uh, experts based in Russia also, is drawing Belarus even further into the uh, Russian sphere of influence, this time really solidifying the bilateral military cooperation between the two countries and placing Belarusian infrastructure, military infrastructure now under control of uh, Russian infrastructure in, um, in, in the general sense. Uh, Russia looks at the deployment of these tactical nukes as a way to extend their nuclear deterrent westward and uh, by placing them in Belarus proper. Uh, some in Russia think um, that not just Poland, but uh, parts of Eastern Europe are now sort of under, under threat, uh, under potential threat uh, from strikes. Uh, Russia doesn't necessarily signal that it wants to use these systems, but again, uh, it places them there as a as a key deterrent in what it sees as a uh, worsening situation, a worsening relationship with the West, and a persistent uh, NATO threat when it comes to NATO supplies to Ukraine and Russia's very precarious military situation in Ukraine proper. I I, I find it interesting that the uh, the antagonist is the one that uses the global response to its aggression as the rationale. It, it's a very nice authoritarian answer to the problem, right? Uh, I caused this, I'm getting my butt kicked. Now I have to be more muscular in my posture, even though not a single NATO nation is threatening Russia, uh, Belarus, nor anybody else with nuclear weapons. Well, it's interesting also that uh, Russian president and government have justified their action by saying this is what United States does with its allies in Europe. Therefore, uh, they can do the same. Uh, indeed, and I, I would I would point out uh, that that uh, deterrent uh, structure uh, was uh, again uh, the result of the Cold War uh, and the Soviet Union's role in trying to intimidate uh, and divide Europe as as much as uh, as much as possible. Right? I mean, it's it's not an and and once that capability was was deployed, the capability has remained among those countries uh, as as part of a, a NATO nuclear deterrent uh, capability. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the question of, of drones and advance the conversation. Uh, what's Russia's former president, Dmitry Medvedev, a former prime minister as well, uh, saying about drones? And why does it matter? Medvedev spoke recently uh, and gave a detailed interview about the country's military drone development. He actually admitted that Russia was, in fact, behind in military drone development for a number of reasons. It is, once again, trying to catch up significantly. He did say that Russia has... Uh, a lot of uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance drones. It's uh, going to manufacture even more kamikaze drones like Landsats and Kubes that have proven very effective. He talked about how Russian defense industry has an entire family of recon and combat drones, which are now undergoing final stages of testing and evaluation. Uh, and he also mentioned something interesting. Is uh, He said uh, that um, no one should really sort of overestimate the importance of drones in this war because they're not really autonomous and they're all human controlled. So the human element is the key element in piloting and operating these drones and um, extrapolating further from his statement, once the human element is affected or taken out, then the drone operations are actually affected. Uh, what is happening in Ukraine right now is that both Russia and Ukraine are prioritizing drone operators. They're looking to strike uh, the locations and uh, and places where uh, Russians or Ukrainians are operating drones respectively to take out um, the operators as the key element in this war. But again, what's interesting is that Medvedev had to go publicly 
restating that the country is somewhat behind and is trying to catch up. Uh, he also mentioned that the so-called Iranian drones are actually Russian drones. Right. And uh, this has been the, uh, the persistent sort of byline from the Russian government that the Shahed 136, 131 are actually Russian Gerain 1 and Gerain 2. They are quote-unquote Russian drones, uh, full stop. Uh, so it was, a, it was an interesting interview from that standpoint uh, since he had to, again, restate the obvious, but he also had to repeat the talking points that were restated earlier before him uh, by other members of the Russian government who had to highlight uh, the state of the Russian drone industry. Uh, in, indeed. Uh, take us uh, to the uh, Turkish uh, Azab uh, system uh, and why that's making headlines. Well, if, if imitation is a serious form of flattery, then Iran should definitely be flattered. In this case, Iran unveiled its Shahed loading munition combat drone lineup uh, several years ago. They've been used by the Russian military to strike Ukrainian civilian targets. It is, um, technologically speaking, a successful design because it kind of, it bridges the capability of, uh, of for example, enabling long-term strikes hundreds and perhaps even up to a thousand kilometers with a relatively low cost of the drone itself because it's made from so many commercial components. Its cost uh, basically varies anywhere from 20,000 to up to $80,000 each, which is still way, way, way less than other drones in operation and obviously can be way cheaper than the missiles and systems trying to shoot down this drone. Uh, there were rumors that China has copied uh, Shahed-136 design as well. And now Turkey has unveiled two drones, Azov T-150 and Azov T-200. They look a lot like the Shahed drone. They uh, have similar characteristics. They have a range of 500 kilometers. The 150 can carry up to uh, um, three kilograms of warhead. And the T-200 can carry up to 15 kilogram warhead. So uh, these are relatively light, supposedly cheap drones that can be manufactured in large numbers. And Turkey now sort of looks at uh, market leaders like Iran and some of the more successful and cheaper options in combat, in combat drone development. And it has unveiled something that looks a lot like what Iran possesses. What's interesting here is that uh, Turkish um, frontline drone like the Bayraktar was actually given to Ukraine. And the Bayraktars performed really well in the early stages of the war when the Russian air defenses and electronic war, uh, warfare defenses were not uh, well uh, positioned. So it is likely that Azabs may also end up in Ukraine. They may also end up, for example, with Azerbaijan as a deterrent to Armenia. So uh, Turkey obviously looks to exporting this technology as it has exported TB2, Bayraktar, and other drones. It is significant because yet another country is unveiling a relatively cheap, loading munition slash combat drone with a significant radius and, and apparently uh, a cheap cost. Uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, Sam, thanks very much. And I would point out right over the course of the last week, the Ukrainians claim to have made a deep strike into Crimea, knocking out some caliber uh, hypersonic missiles. That was from uh, last week. Uh, it was an announcement. And so it's, it's interesting how both sides are using long range unmanned systems uh, to, to strike each other. Uh, in the several hundred mile uh, uh, range class. I think it's an absolutely fascinating development. And, and why it's so important that the United States is starting to study more closely 
how uh, both sides are adapting and particularly lessons that can be learned from the Ukrainians in their rapid adoption of technology. Absolutely fascinating. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium was brought to you by GE Aerospace Leonardo DRS and Helicon Chemical. Our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS. And our upcoming coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show are brought to you by HII, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And joining us now is Dr. David Asher, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. He's one of the world's leading experts on sanctions who helped bring North Korea to the negotiating table and destroyed the financial capabilities of transnational terror groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. David Welcome back to the program. It's always a, a, a pleasure, especially as you're preparing your testimony before uh, the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Wednesday. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, let me uh, start out. Right, war is almost a, a year old. Over the course of uh, the conflict, you've joined us uh, to discuss the efficacy of sanctions and the kind of tools we need to be uh, imposing. It appears that a year into this conflict, uh, a lot of our allies, whether it's Turkey, uh, Switzerland, uh, which with which great fanfare joined the sanctions regime, as well as our Gulf uh, partners, uh, are helping the Russians actively evade uh, sanctions. There are many other nations around the world that are doing that. What has to happen? You know, and and now we're seeing uh, Vladimir Putin move, as we heard at the top of the show with Sam Bendet, uh, tactical nuclear weapons to 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 Belarus. Where are we and what more has to be done with sanctions for them to be truly effective? Because the administration has looked at sanctions as being to use them as a strategic weapon, and that really doesn't appear to be the case. Well, I mean, you know, it's a case where uh, being bulky and massive doesn't necessarily have massive effect. I mean, you've got over 2,500 Russia-related targets that are blocked by the U.S. Treasury Department through sanctions. Everyone from Putin on down, his key oligarchs uh, in, in, in our sanctum, 80% of the Russian banking sector by assets are under U.S. sanctions, including the top 10 Russian banks. Every member of their Duma and federal, counts, uh, federal council, every governor of every province of Russia. Okay, and then there's hundreds of targets that are affiliates of Russia or facilitators uh, of Russia who are sanctioned as well. And the net effect is the Russian economy is not even contracting substantially. The um, foreign reserves have not been depleted at the level predicted. And the Russians are busting sanctions in a way that only Saddam Hussein could feel, you know, envy over. Um, I mean, they're beating, you know, he was sort of the all-time greatest sanctions evader. Um, well, uh, Putin's, uh, uh, you know, nomenclatura are doing an even uh, more impressive job. And, 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 you know, we've got a lot of holes in our sanctions. We have hundreds of exemptions and waivers. Um, you know, we let uh, Deripaska off the hook because we need his aluminum. He's the most important of all the oligarchs financially. Um, we don't even enforce uh, 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 any sort of significant strategic targeting against the most important bank, which I've discussed with you before, which is the one that Putin helped create called Bank Rasaya. That's the one right. that went into the Crimea. 
okay, and set up all the branches. You know, if you really want to do sanctions effectively, in my experience, you don't whack a mole. You don't even necessarily go after the entire economy of your adversary. You go after the leadership and you go after their money and make it a fight between you and them. That's what I did on North Korea. That's what we did, um, frankly, against the Islamic State. We, we targeted the leadership finances. Ultimately, we did affect the entire thing. But, I mean, we went top down. These sanctions are sort of bottom up. And then there's all these exemptions for natural right. gas exports or oil. And now these are being mostly uh, remedied, but there's still a lot of holes that exist. Um, there's lots of exemptions. Um, Gazprom Bank, Gaz, Gazprom are not sanctioned as far as I know, at least in a serious way. I have to verify that in case it's changed. But, you know, you can't leave critical if you're if you, little you can't leave critical pieces of the terrain right. uncovered. And you also got to decide, what are you trying to affect? I mean, my goal would be to affect Putin's remaining hair, getting his hair, getting his head. It's a little late to do that at this stage. Um, uh, and frankly, they're not doing as far as we can tell. And we really can't tell that much because there's a lot probably that's classified. But, you know, if Russia's financial system was really being disrupted, we'd sort of know it internally. I mean, right. where's our cyber command? Where's our operational attack surfaces against their money? I mean, you know, we can reach in inside their country too. Instead, we see Russia, China, and the Middle East forging a type of quiet alliance. Um, and, you, you know, we're starting to see the Chinese become the peace broker between the Russians who might as well be the Soviets in the eyes of, of Putin, because um, that's where he wants to go back to. But, um, you know, the, the Chinese are going to be the ones that want to put the reconstruction deal on the table. They're going to be the ones who I sense see an opportunity for them to strike a peace between the Ukraine right. and Putin. And what we're going to see is the Chinese emerging with the Russia, uh, a mostly broken Russia and financially disrupted Russia, uh, or enfeebled Russia, but still a Russia that remains under Putin's control uh, with a decent chunk of Ukraine uh, probably still in its hands. And China, I think, personally, will emerge next summer as the great peacemaker. And as part of this, there's going to have a, a, a currency element that will play a role in the uh, sublimation uh, attempt by the Chinese of the U.S. dollar in global uh, currency settlement. So, so, you know, this great game is on and we're not really in it. Well, you know, well, I mean, I hate to say it. We're, we can't even arm these people uh, properly. I mean, you know, we keep saying we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to allow F-16s. Now they're going to allow F-16s. We don't allow the General Atomics aircraft to come in, which is ridiculous because there's like 100 of them sitting out in the desert collecting dust right now, probably going to be decommissioned. I right. mean, seriously. Well, I mean, that we need to we know there's going to be a likely resolution at the cost of a massive throne of blood of Ukraine and Russian bodies. OK, that will ultimately lead to some sort of uh, negotiated settlement, even if it shouldn't be a negotiated settlement. I just sense that that will happen. I sense the Chinese will play a decisive role in that. But there's going to be an element where not only have our sanctions failed, partly because China is just backdooring 
not just the military aid and assistance, but basically they're buying the Russian petroleum, you know, um, and to some extent, natural gas. Um, you know, China's cleaning up um, and Russia is not broken financially. They're just in fever. We've got about uh, two minutes left, David, uh, unfortunately. And I, I want to end uh, with talking a little bit about your testimony. But more immediately, does Vladimir Putin moving tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus give us an opportunity to hit the reset button? And I should point out to folks, you've served uh, administrations, whether they're Democratic uh, or Republican. So I, I know you don't mean this as, as partisan criticism. Ultimately, does does this escalatory move by the Russians give us an opportunity to hit them with harder sanctions? Yes, but we'll have to do things that the Treasury Department just won't do under uh, its current policy, which means eliminate the so-called 50% rule, where if you drop the ownership of a sanction entity below 50%, which the Russians have done on every single sanction entity, the sanctions no longer apply. Um, you know, I mentioned that Gazprom is not fully sanctioned. The Gazprom Bank is, but the, the, there's so many exemptions for the for the for for uh, these key strategic arteries of the Russian economy. Still, that that sanctions are not only not applying through the 50% waiver, uh, but they're also not applying because they've um, uh, not been uh, they've been given exemptions. There's so many exemptions to the right. sanctions. So, like we've got Swiss cheese holes in our cheese. And I think that needs to be tightened up. There is an opportunity and I hope to God it will happen because it, it better. Um, and it, otherwise we're not going to have a, a full use of this important non-kinetic toolkit to apply systematic pressure against the Russian regime. Uh, I, I would uh, agree with you, right? I mean, we're, we're trying to be uh, careful and non-escalatory, but in the process, the conflict itself is spanning longer, proving more deadly uh, and, and more destructive and more expensive. Let me ask you really quickly in about 30 or so seconds, what folks should be uh, looking forward to hearing uh, at the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee, where you're going to be talking about more broadly uh, economic uh, steps we should be taking against China, uh, right. Uh, and we should be able to walk and chew gum simultaneously. Right. It's not just about yeah. Russia, Russia, Russia. Yeah, I'm we also need to be China, 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 China. I'm going to propose a, a, a simple and absolutely necessary uh, uh, legislative uh, solution on sanctions against China uh, to explicitly uh, uh, create a, a sanctions regime through legislation against the nuclear, biological, chemical, space and missile programs of the people's uh, Republic of China and its Liber People's Liberation Army, key uh, uh, entities uh, and officers as well, potentially. But starting with the companies, they're at the forefront of, of, of doing trade, including buying stuff in the United States uh, and uh, recruiting talent in the United States for their weapons of mass destruction. And most specifically, sanctioned the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, the organization that I led the, uh, the targeting of uh, if via the uh, government investigation into what happened in Wuhan, uh, the evidence now is becoming pretty dispositive about its involvement and the cover-up, if not the crime, uh, of creating COVID, which I'm confident it was involved in, and um, it deserves to be punished. And we need to send a message to the Chinese that there's going to be a cost imposed for what they did to the world in murdering 20 million people through their deleterious conduct and failure to inform the world that something had happened somehow, whether in a wet market or more likely a lab leak, 
that that got out and the Chinese let spread all over the world and told us didn't exist. You know, I mean, they, they, they they're absolutely complicit as a regime in tens of millions of deaths and hundreds of millions of people being ill. David, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Look forward to continuing this conversation, especially when we have uh, a longer segment to uh, discuss it in. Thanks so very much. Break a leg on Wednesday uh, and looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. And joining us as he does almost every week is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Absolutely, Bago. Uh, it wouldn't be Monday unless we were talking. Um, we are obviously now in budget hearing season. Uh, and um, you, in your note, uh, your week ahead note, you looked at what happened last week and what it tells us about what's uh, to come. Walk us through your thesis. Well, they're just sharper elbows. You know, the big the big hearing last week was House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. And, you know, you could see the partisan trench lines for both Democrats and, and uh, Republicans during the hearing. And I found, you know, as much as there's bipartisanship on defense issues, you know, they're just sharper lines being drawn between the two sides on, <clears throat> you know, is, are we spending enough defense or is it, is it too much? Um, you know, what are the criticisms of the administration? Well, you know, what, what are things the administration is doing right here? Um, there really wasn't a lot on individual programs, although that's going to come up in, in the hearings uh, this coming week, of which there are many. I kind of feel like this is my equivalent of earnings reporting season, given the amount of hearings that are going on and kind of, you know, how to manage and, and pick out what <clears throat> what matters from all that's going on this week. But just the tone was different. And, you know, you guys talked about it on your usual uh, Friday call with Mike Hurston in particular, you know, I, I think the, the backdrop of the Deloro, um, the, the responses to Representative Deloro's letters that she had sent asking, you know, what would happen if your department or agency was funded at FY22 for FY24, and how would you deal with a 22% funding cut? When you go through those letters, you know, it's really pretty alarming. Um, everything from, you know, decline in food inspection, longer TSA uh, weights, um, you know, cutback in rail safety. I mean, I, I just think all this discussion about budget cuts and, and the debt ceiling, it's fine in theory until you really start trying to put some of this to, well, what are the actual implications of it? And, um I expect we're going to hear more of that. More of that is going to get woven into the defense hearings this week about about what are the trades you're going to have to make. You know, can you do this with a with a with a chainsaw or an axe, or do you need to do it more more um, take more time and do it with a scalpel and really really get at costs and get at inefficiencies of government? But I think just this idea that you're going to hey here you guys have to cut your budget by twenty two percent. The more this comes out about what the public implications of that are. I think the 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 less likely is that you're going to see that actually transpire, uh, and and that opens up an entire uh, conversation we're going to have in a minute about sort of the outlook for the industry, something you spend a lot of time uh, thinking about. Let me ask you, what are some of the key events in the coming week? I mean, what are you looking forward to? Because we've got a regular events, and we'll save that for the very end. Uh, but there are also a number of hearings you're paying attention to this week as well. Well, absolutely, and, and what you hope to hear from people. 
Well, I think the hearings to me, well, let's start. The one thing I am still waiting for, Vago, are some of the budget justification books. Um, this has been kind of a drawn out release. Um, a number of them have been uh, posted on the comptroller's website, but Army RDT&E isn't out yet, and Air Force Missile uh, Procurement isn't out yet. So I think just kind of piecing that all together, because that's where you really get a, a, a good look at, it's not just what's in the FY24 budget, but what's the administration thinking about over the next five years? And, uh, you know, I'll just say <clears throat> there are a lot of takeaways. Uh, it's a plan, obviously. Will it be funded? You know, but but where are the priorities? What's what's actually, where are they putting their money? And And so when you see things like, oh, two new submarine tenders or just how big the, uh, the the collaborative combat aircraft program could be as part of the NGAD program. You know, these are just little revelations that I think matter in these in these books. And I recognize that they're they're the start of a plan. So in the hearings, for me, it's really just pulling out, well, what do you what what are the issues that representatives of Congress look like? Uh, and how do they see the budget and the, the budget justification book and the request? Um, you know, again, there were a couple of little tidbits out of the Hack D hearing last week that I thought were interesting on things like the F-18 program. Um, the other big events to me are Royal United Services Institute is doing their combat air conference in London on Tuesday. Uh, they're going to stream that. So that means my alarm will go off at 3.30 a.m. on Tuesday, but that's life. Um, <laughs> That's right. If you have to, if you have to learn, if you're going to learn, you've got to be a little inconvenienced. You do, you know, the coffee pot will be ready and I'll, I'll make it. It's, it's, you know, it's part of what I do and it's actually very interesting. Um, but they're also doing, uh, another event on navigating the poly crisis, climate change and energy security. So, you know, kind of stepping back and thinking about what's, what's really going on from a broader security standpoint, is going to be important. Um, AUSA is doing another event in Huntsville, Alabama, <clears throat> that I think is going to, you know, drill down on some of their defense programs and priorities. Um, you know, there are, there are a bunch of other think tank events on uh, Ukraine. Um, really, this week, it seems the tone is more on reconstruction and um, and redevelopment and governance. Uh, but, you know, there is a there there's a hearing. I think House Foreign Affairs is doing a hearing on, uh, you know, kind of oversight and um, on, on the aid to Ukraine. And then I think the backdrop, you know, as much as I've spent most of my time thinking about Russia, Ukraine and what that means, you know, the events last week in Syria, um, the, the behavior of Iranian militias and these really massive demonstrations going on in Israel, I think, you know, we, as much as we try and pull away from the Middle East, um, you know, it it just has a centripetal force that's going to draw us back in in ways that are always fascinating and interesting. But uh, but th that's kind of on my mind this week too: is what's going on in that part of the world and what could it possibly mean from the defense sector? Uh, it, you you may be through. You may think you're through with it, but it might not be through with you, uh, which is uh, a byword. Um, let me take you to something you did mention, which I thought was fascinating in this note, and harkens back to something uh, Raytheon did earlier this year. As I mentioned, uh, you and I are always thinking about the future of the industry. Uh, you wrote about Raytheon's uh, decision to basically organize uh, organize itself into a single segment, which is kind of a unique approach to doing things. Um, 
Steve Blank of Stanford University has long said that if we don't see a meaningful new commercial entrant into the defense business in the next few years, our innovation strategies will have failed. And indeed, he was quoted in the Wall Street Journal saying, uh, using the three-year limit, and we're going to have Steve and Joe Felter on uh, here again soon. What, what do you make of the Raytheon decision? You know, why did it take you so long to write about it? And how well, do we it's need just, to It's just been on my mind. And sometimes you only have a certain amount of bandwidth. And, and it's it's kind of in that little bucket of things you say, you know, at some point I want to sit down and write this. And it, yeah, this was, they announced this back in January, but, <clears throat> you know, it creates the largest single defense segment of any of the major U.S. defense contractors. I think I included BAE Systems in there because they obviously have a, a U.S. business as well, too. The, um, I don't know what it means, Bog. Oh, you know, will they make a lot of cost savings on this? Maybe, you know, but does it limit their span of control? Um, you know, how can a single uh, sector head of a $26, $27 billion defense business really see what's going on at the edges of the business? Um <clears throat> So, you know, will they, will they really evidence faster growth than their competitors because they're able to maximize the use of their own internal technologies or draw from outside partners? Are they really going to have a cost structure that's going to give them an advantage over competition? I think the jury's very much out on that. And I think the other, maybe the other little bell that went off about this was um, Parsons, which was another publicly traded company. They address both kind of public infrastructure and defense markets. Had an investor day <clears throat> probably two weeks back in New York City. And one of the things, you know, they're about a $4 billion company and they were very, you know, open that they're not having the retention and recruiting issues that I see in some of the other larger contractors. <clears throat> and they kind of attributed to this to, we're kind of a size where people can move around, they can get things done. You know, I think they also probably have a span of control and a culture from a smaller organization that that maybe helps that. Uh, so I don't have, the, I don't think there's a definitive answer here. I just think it's something for people to think about. Uh, there's obviously a wide span of of defense sector segment size. Um, I can understand, you know, like Lockheed Martin Aeronautics is the second largest uh, uh, defense sector on a pro forma basis in 2022 when you rank them by sales. But, you know, 66% of that segment sales is from a single program, the F-35. So that's different than having a portfolio of thousands of programs um, that, that uh, you know, that are going to comprise the, the Raytheon business segment at Raytheon Technologies. And I, I don't know, I wouldn't say if we don't get a new entrant in the next three years, if that's necessarily a failure. I mean, arguably, SpaceX has been a new entrant. Uh, GM Defense has been a new entrant in, in the defense market. You know, so I wouldn't, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, I and I think you really always have to judge this about I'm agnostic about you know Silicon Valley does not have a monopoly on technology our our large heritage defense contractors can do some interesting things you know if they're given the runway and the the agility and the tools uh you know they can do some pretty interesting things too so I wouldn't think that there's a failure if we don't see three or four of the small little entrants scale up. And I, I think you'd have to put that in historic context too. You know, you, you could argue a lot of the, the aircraft companies in the U.S. 
we haven't really had a new entrance since what the 1920s maybe the 1940s or 30s you, you tell me but um it's it's an interesting question that he raises, and I think that one it should be answered in a historic context too. Um, I and and I would agree that all of those guys are, are new. His direct quote was, "If we don't see ten new names uh, in the next three years, we're failing to actually uh, integrate commercial uh, technology into DoD." Uh, where I agree with him, right? I mean, it's it, we uh, we are seeing folks come into the market, but. You know, it took a long time to get SpaceX built up. That started all the way uh, uh, back, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, yeah. right, when Sean O'Keefe was at uh, NASA. Uh, and if you look at General Motors, General Motors, you know, is, it was a vehicle maker kind of getting back into a light, uh, light vehicles, seeing how to expand its markets, uh, its access with a whole bunch of other technologies. Microsoft, longtime supplier, right? I mean, so some of these guys have been there, but I take his point then in order to take this to the next level, you really do have to attract a whole bunch of new folks into it uh, that that might be skeptical because these guys do have uh, and gals have better mousetraps. The question yeah. is whether they can they can get those mousetraps in. Um, yeah. Byron, as always, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Look forward to continuing the discussion and seeing you next week at Navy League where you can give us uh, your expectations on what we uh, should be hearing over uh, three action-packed days. I'm looking forward to being at Navy League. I'm sorry I missed uh, cherry blossom season, but but hopefully there's still a couple left in Washington. You got you got to enjoy the snow, so it was a nice trade-off. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Byron.